you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. Matt Malachi is a golf course architecture fan of the highest order. I first came across him through his opening day review of Barn Boogle Dunes in Tasmania, which was published on the Golf Club Atlas website in 2004. This article was my first introduction to the, to the delights on offer in Bridport and played a central role in developing my desire to make that particular pilgrimage to Van Diemen's land. Matt has recently launched a new podcast entitled The Australian Golf Passport Podcast with Scott Warren. The pod focuses on golf-related travel for inbound golfers into Australia. Thus far, the first few episodes have really acted as an introduction to the golfing landscape in Australia for the uninitiated. Since the introduction, they have hit their straps in featuring a number of the expected Tier 1 courses, such as Royal Melbourne, New South Wales and Barnboogle. If you like golf, you love the new pod. They definitely are worth a follow. During the course of the episode, we will explore the backstory of how Matt and Scott stopped talking about doing a pod and finally bit the bullet, as it were. In addition to getting some advice for recommendations of where listeners might consider, as must visit golfing ports of call in Australia. We also explore the Rollback Alliance initiative that Matt founded a few years back with Will Watt of Caddy Magazine. As part of this discussion, we will look briefly at the evolution of technology in golf and also reference some further reading and listening on the topic should you be so inclined. The deadline for OEM submissions to the RNA and the USGA with regard to both distance insight reports and model local rules proposal passed recently. We will consider why, once again, we are at an important inflection point where action is required to endeavour to return words such as balance, scale, architectural intent and pretel long iron to the lexicon of at least the professional and elite amateur vocabulary. We fall down a few other expected rabbit holes, so please bear with us when that happens. It was great to host Matt on the show, so many thanks for tuning in. We really do hope you enjoyed the chat. Hi Matt, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. It really is great to have you on. We've, uh, I guess, DM'd about this on a few, a few occasions over the past number of months. Getting really jealous, obviously, as we move into uh, winter here. How is Royal Melbourne as the green shoots of spring appear in Melbourne? Well, Shane, it's it's starting to warm up. We've had a reasonably cold winter in Melbourne and probably a little more rain than average. So the courses certainly aren't at their best at this time of the year, but uh, they're a sight uh, at this time. We've got spring flowers all over the place, heath and lilies and orchids and tea tree flowering all over the place. Uh, but in the coming months when the weather dries out and the courses firm up and we get some um, fairway grass growth, things will be even better. Excellent. I think maybe as a starting position for those listeners, and I'm sure there probably are a few, the particularly the non-Australian based listeners who perhaps don't know who you are, you might give us a brief introduction to Matthew Malika, Melbourneian, podiatrist, golf tragic, podcaster, and of course, golf course reviewer. Okay. Uh, yes, all those things. Um, golf tragic, essentially at the top of the list. Um, 
Where to start? I'm a very proud Melbourneian. Been playing golf most of my life. Uh, turned 50 next year. And I was thinking uh, of things that we might be discussing during the course of recording the podcast. And, and one of the things that was at the forefront of my mind was that if, um, if somehow I could manage to leave work, I feel very comfortable that I could dedicate the rest of my life to golf, whether it's playing, writing, reading, tinkering with equipment, playing with different equipment, visiting different courses, talking to people about it. Um, it's, a, it's a great passion of mine, and that's only grown in the last few decades. Apart from that, uh, as you said, I'm a podiatrist, started my own uh, clinic here in suburban Melbourne a little over 25 years ago. Uh, I'm a husband and a father of two. Neither my wife nor my kids have any great interest in golf. Uh, they like coming to the club. They like they like the dining room, and my kids like going to the pro shop. But that's about it. Uh, as my love of golf grew, and I started to visit more courses, I think that really was the key to um, the passion deepening and diversifying so that I would start to travel and review and photograph and really critically think about the courses that, that I was on. And we're blessed in Australia, as you, as you said at the outset, we've, we've got a, a wealth of great courses here and uh, New Zealand is growing as well as a destination. So there's wonderful courses to go and visit over there when I travel to go and see my wife's family. She's a, she's a proud Kiwi. The best of both worlds, you fecker. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's a great country in New Zealand. We've 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 wondered at various times if we could ever live there. I don't think we're going there, but but um it is a it's a beautiful place. And what neck of the woods in New Zealand is your uh, missus from? She grew up in Palmerston North, about an hour drive north of Paraparumu Beach. And then her family moved okay. to Auckland. She came across here after a gap year in London, and uh, her family, her parents are now in Nelson, top of the South Island. Okay, top of the South Island. Yeah, my brother lived in uh, Wellington for six, seven years. So I've had the pleasure of golfing in New Zealand as well, which is, which is right up there as well as, and, and a little, little bit easier to navigate around. Obviously, with the country being somewhat smaller than uh, your big continent. Yeah, it's. it's the podcast that I've recently started with Scott Warren, which we'll, we'll no doubt address at some stage throughout our chat, Shane, we, we tried from the outset to convey to listeners in the UK and Europe and the US just how big Australia is and how difficult that can make it at times if you're wanting to visit a lot of different courses, particularly if they're in the corners of the country, be it Brisbane or down in Tassie or across in Perth. They're, they're big flights. New Zealand. Definitely a little more manageable. Yeah, for sure. You know, I first came across you through the Golf Course Architecture website back in, I think, 04 or 05, just after Barnboogle Dunes opened up in Tasmania. And I think post your first trip down there, you wrote a really cool review and, and one from the heart, I think. So you've been at the, the commentating about uh, golf courses for a while. As you rightly pointed out, the first thing that I'd like to address is, is the recent launching of the Australian Golf Passport podcast, which a good mate and New South Wales member, Scott Warren. First question I have for you is, 
why podcasting? I think I, I think you've spoke you spoke with Scotty for a long time about it, but what was the catalyst to actually finally bite the bullet? Um, we both listen to a lot of them. We both enjoy uh, listening to a lot of the domestically produced podcasts on golf, and also uh, a couple from overseas. We'd spoken about it three years ago. We we played together in the Renaissance Cup when that was held down at the National just as COVID was hitting. And uh, we, I think we've been talking about what introduction music we would use if we were to ever do one. And we would periodically revisit the topic just throughout 2020 and last year. And the more we spoke about it, the more we realised there was this little hole in what was being provided in terms of analysis of golf courses in Australia. And slowly but surely, we refined that to closely resemble, hopefully, what we've begun recording. And that's a a bit of an introduction into uh, visiting Australia's great courses. Uh, Those people overseas who want to come down here and have a bucket list trip and visit Royal Melbourne and Barn Boogle and Cape Wickham and Kingston Heath and New South Wales and various others, we really felt that apart from enjoying the process, that we would be of great benefit to those people and that they could um, have a better trip as a consequence of our experiences and a little bit of local knowledge. Okay, so who's your co-host, Scott Warren? What's his, uh, what's his story? Another golf tragic, I'm assuming. Yes, he is. He's, he lives up in Sydney, and Scott and I first crossed paths on a domestic uh, golf forum, a couple of hundred um, golf dorks, Bred mainly throughout Sydney and Melbourne, most most states of Australia now. Uh, we probably first met up more than a decade ago, and we both serve on the ranking panel for Golf Australia magazine. There's a couple of magazines that do a, a ranking edition of Australia's courses every two years. There's Australian Golf Digest, and then there's Golf Australia magazine that that both me and Scott work with, and um, and Ross Flanagan too who's one of your avid listeners. Uh, he's, he's one of that, that group. Uh, so Scott's a father as well. Uh, his wife is a very busy and very successful journo. Uh, Scott has a journalism background and he's been in a range of communication roles um, over the last few years. Uh, and yeah, I, I really, I, I knew he'd be good at it and I knew he'd be a better host than me. Um, I'm, I'm glad I'm doing it with him because if it was two of me, I don't think it would be anywhere near as successful. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. One of his hot takes, I think, in the early, I don't know, was it the first episode or the second episode, where he likened Liam Hemsworth, the actor, to Metropolitan Golf Club, but where it sits in the sand belt. I thought that was just the most phenomenal juxtaposition to try and explain where and and what Metro is and how it sit in the sand belt. Yeah, he he compared he compared Liam and, and Metropolitan Golf Course. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure that everyone at Metro will be chuffed about that. Um, it made sense to me, and it was very satisfying to both me and Scott when Scott has subsequently been congratulated on this stance by a number of Metropolitan members. Um, <laughs> Metropolitan's got a huge number of redeeming features. I played there earlier in the year and was eagerly awaiting the visit to the course for the fortnight prior. Uh, 
I'm looking forward to going back if they'll have me. And um, <laughs> best of luck with that. <laughs> thanks. Uh, I can. Und- <laughs> You're guilty by association, mate. I can understand. I can understand where Scott was going. Um, it's not Chris, and I can't remember the name of the other Hemsworth brother. They're like the Baldwins. There's just one or two too many of them, and there's one headliner, and then there's a few others. But Metro, as, as Scott was pointing out, Metro is not Royal Melbourne and it's not Kingston Heath. Um, and for someone who's on borrowed time, it might not make their itinerary on a visit to the Sandbelt. It probably should. And that was one thing that we probably neglected to mention in that little exchange. But we both had a chuckle about it when he mentioned it. Yeah, look, I suppose if you're if you're limited for time uh, in the Melbourne area and there's so much golf sort of down south in terms of Mornington and over the other side in relation to Bellarine, you know, something's got to give. You know, th- there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so many uh, holes of golf you can play on a on a, you know, a, a tight trip. So I, I would I would concur having the only time I've been in Melbourne I was unfortunate not to play your place because it was closed to visitors but did get to play Metro which was uh, I think our yeah we played Kingston Heat first and then played Metro the next day and then finished with Victoria so I have a lot of loose ends to tidy up in Melbourne uh, over the next number of years including your place but um, I, I'm interested to uh, if, if we if we just take a step back for a second and just sort of look at Australia from a golfing perspective. It's a bloody long way away from, from, from Ireland or Europe or even the States. It's very, very hot at times. And the spiders and snakes and sharks, Jesus, I mean, it's going to attack you. So why should we go to Australia to golf at all, Mr. Mark? Uh, I've only seen a snake on a course three or four times throughout all my years. Um, mm-hmm. There might have been a couple more that were closer to me that I remain blissfully unaware of. But uh, as we said at the outset, we have, a, we have a wealth of great courses and there's a natural character to many of them that I don't think you quite find anywhere else in the world. There's, there's, there's natural courses all throughout the UK, um, obviously, but they have a little different flavour to them. I think... The Australian courses have a have a particular flavour that golf enthusiasts would really savour if they were to visit our shores. Um, some of them are coastal. Some of them, particularly through the Sandbelt, have a, a semi-heathland slash parkland feel to them. Uh, there's some others throughout uh, Adelaide that really reward a visit as well. Uh, Plates did some great work at the, the west course of the Grange, uh, and, and Royal Adelaide has a wonderful feel to it as well. There's a lot of those courses that we've already mentioned that have a have a Mackenzie lineage, which will be a, a real magnet for many people travelling to Australia. Uh, there's some dramatic courses throughout our country, New South Wales, Cape Wickham, courses at Barnboogle and others. There's lots to see for a connoisseur of great golf. And I guess... If we take time and the resources required to do this, I mean, where would you say the most play locations to your mind in in an Australian context are? So obviously, listeners may consider biting all of these off in one go, although that's quite onerous given the the likely geographic 
distance between some of the locations. So really, to your mind, let's say I'm not going to put a limit on the number of courses you can pick, but to get a good flavor in terms of tier one, where would you suggest that people, at least in terms of coming up with a list, would put on the list for consideration? I think you'd probably start with five or six courses as must-sees. And they'd be Royal Melbourne's West Course and Kingston Heath, which are only a couple of miles from one another. And I've seen lots of visitors play those morning and afternoon or on back-to-back days, so they're, they're quite manageable. The two courses at Barnboogle Dunes certainly warrant attention. Uh, and you can stay down there for a day or two and tick both of those off the list. But it's Barnboogle Dunes, which, as you said, opened in 2004, and then... Cause Lost Farm course next door that opened in 2010. Cape Wickham, I think I've, I've oscillated a little on this over the journey. I told several visitors at the outset that they could come back and visit at another time, or if you only had limited time, maybe you'd go and see other courses. And that was in large part because of fear that they'd be windblown or the logistics of travel to King Island would make things a little bit difficult. But the more I think about it and the way that I've seen people rave after they've visited, I think that, that Cape Wickham probably edges its way onto that list of must-sees. And if we look at things just purely numerically, Golf Magazine and Golf Digest, all those other publications that review golf courses worldwide, they, they have those five courses in their top 100 and then the additional Australian courses that round out their list, that, that, that varies a little bit. Some put New South Wales in the top 50, some have it between 50 to 100. Uh, and there's a couple of other Australian courses that round out that list. Sometimes uh, Royal Adelaide makes it. Uh, sometimes Metropolitan or Royal Melbourne's East course makes it onto that list. So they're the, they're the, they're the top of mind courses. Um, but I'd suggest any real, really keen golf traveller make it their business to see. I've noticed recently, I think, that Cape Wickens for sale. Any update on, on that? I, there's, uh, obviously, I think it's been through this the second ownership since it was built at currently, so they're looking for owner number three, is that right? I think so. We'd heard rumours a while ago that the second owner was looking at building course number two, building more accommodation, doing all manner of different things. And, and as you said earlier in the year, we caught wind of the fact that it was up for sale. COVID must have knocked them around a lot. Uh, I don't understand the economics of golf course management super well. I've got a reasonable grasp on the, on the broad brush strokes of it all. And I'd... I'd always be fearful that you'd reach critical mass in terms of the number of visitors that would make it to Cape Wickham, irrespective of course quality. Um, it's even even for us in Melbourne, it's it's a little difficult to get to, and so the guys in Adelaide and Sydney find it slightly more difficult. And then, if you were to fly here from Melbourne, Shane, you'd, oh sorry, if you were to fly here from from Ireland. Um, once I'm in Melbourne, oh, now I've got to go do this as well. It's a little plane that gets you to uh, Curry, which is the, the main town on, on King Island. 
It's a 40 minute drive from there to Cape Wickham. There's nothing else at Cape Wickham apart from the course. The accommodation is really nice. The golf course is wonderful. Um, but there's not a lot of infrastructure on King Island. There's probably only 2,000 people living on the island. There's another two golf courses, Ocean Dunes and, a, and a, an older nine-hole golf course. There's one or two restaurants. There's a pub. There's no traffic lights. Um, so it's it's hard to – it would be hard to make it work from an economic perspective. Yeah, I guess the one thing they're missing there is footfall and – when you bring small planes into the equation, you're obviously limited to the amount of arrivals you can accommodate in any particular given day. So um, an unbelievable golf course, undoubtedly, but as you rightly pointed out, you might be a little bit concerned. That's probably a bit too strong, but you know the, the sustainability of the business model in terms of actually getting numbers of people through there in any great quantity uh, which any business needs from a from a a, 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 a cash perspective, I suppose. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how many rounds they average per year. Uh, they do close in the middle three months of calendar year, so our winter, uh, of course, doesn't see any play, which is um, uh, probably a good thing. People would get, I think, too windblown or too cold down there at that time of the year, I suspect. But it's it's nine months of the year where you can you can make your money rather than twelve. If somebody was considering travelling to golf in Australia, what would you consider the best time or times of the year? Both from a, a I guess a, a weather perspective, but maybe also from if somebody's looking to sort of hit the shoulder season, so there's not as many um, inbounds around. Um, or, or maybe they, their complexion is somewhat similar to mine, that they do a mean case of lobster uh, in terms of getting sunburned. So to try and stay away from those, uh, depending on your poison, 40-degree days or in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I think November's a good month to visit. It doesn't get too hot. Fairway grasses are really starting to get going in terms of growth and course presentation ramps up a little at that time of the year typically march and april scott keeps coming back to march and april when he suggests visits on on the podcast we do and i just find myself nodding in agreement i keep thinking back of temperature course conditions course traffic the light in the afternoons particularly the late afternoons while we still hang on to a little bit of daylight saving there that march and april would probably be my best two months you still wear sunscreen on those days, Shane. You still have a broad brim hat on occasions, but you, you're well past those uh, days where you're a chance to get a 40 degree Celsius day. It's funny, uh, as a complete aside, my mother, the last time I was down in Australia, which was January 2020, just before COVID took off, my mother gave me a, a, <laughs> a, some, some sun cream, factor 30. And I put that on as we were traveling around the moon, of course, at the National down in the Mornington. First day sort of in the Melbourne area, and I got absolutely scorched. Didn't wear Factor 30 after that. It was Factor 50 the whole time, and that worked perfectly well. But um, we also had 
the bushfires and the aftermath of that for a couple of days. So pretty interesting conditions on the sandbelt. I'd like to look, and, and I know you guys have focused on New South Wales recently on, a, on an episode, which is a, a real favourite of mine in Sydney. And I know Sydney tends to get a bad rap, relatively speaking, as a location for really great golf. Um, so I'm going to throw a question at you. and I'm going to say, so purely from a golfing perspective, should one consider a trip to Adelaide or Sydney if you're choosing between the two? There's a, there's a nice question for you. I think I've... Uh, slightly to Sydney. Okay. I think most uh, logistically, uh, that might answer it for me. I think most international visitors land in either. Well, they they, are, they do land in Sydney. The majority of our international visitors, so they're right there to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. If you've got one course to visit while you're in Sydney, it's New South Wales. That second tier includes Bonnie Doon, which is not very far away. That was a a recipient of a staged multi-year but very significant and very successful course renovation by um, Mike Clayton and, and Cocking and Ogilvy and Mead when they were a foursome. And that's a really, really cool place to visit. A little bit of an unheralded architectural gem there. Yeah. Gem. Yeah. Mm. I would concur 100%. I had the pleasure of a couple of rounds there the last time and I had no expectations and actually it blew me yeah, away. It's a really cool course. I'm sure their members are very happy with the work that was done there and they're very happy that they went through the pain of getting it done over those years. Apart from Bonnie Doon, there's the Lakes, which is quite close to Kingsford Smith Airport in Sydney. You can trek up the highway to Newcastle to see a really significant course where Rand Morissette was a member for a while while he was living in Australia. Rand's the the founder and owner of Golf Club Atlas. And then there's all the tourism stuff, as you said, which if you were travelling with a non-golfing spouse or if you wanted to have a, a, a blended holiday where you were playing some golf but doing some other things, the, the Harbour Bridge, the Opera House, that, that doesn't hurt no, no. And the fact that Sydney's harbour is probably one of the wonders of the world. And just as a as a piece of advice from someone that lived there for a little while, don't go and pay a hundred plus dollars on the Captain Cook cruise around the bay. Just go and get the Sydney to Manly Ferry. It's significantly cheaper and takes in all the yeah, sights as well. Good advice. I guess the reason I asked that first question about Adelaide or Sydney, and it was a little bit unkind of me I, I spent 12 months or so living in Sydney and I've been, been back visiting since and I've got a really good some really good mates in Adelaide and I just love Adelaide only been there once but the welcome at Royal Adelaide is probably as an as a reciprocal inbound is probably the best welcome I've ever had anywhere all the members were keen to I mean the, e even the fact that the club set me up on their their members tea time booking system to make life easy for me and my mates but what a place i mean the the city's the city's really i guess relatively speaking an awful lot smaller than melbourne and sydney so it's easier to get around um but i just thought adelaide was phenomenal i mean well adelaide's great really 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 good golf course some really, really interesting holes, and obviously that Mackenzie heritage that you spoke to previously. I also had a chance to get a spin around 
Kiyunga with their uh, their head pro John Corbett. Um, guy was feeling a little said he was a little rusty, hadn't played in five or four or five months. Missed a putt on the last for a sixty three or a sixty four. So that was uh, that was quite nice to see. But um, the Adelaide Sand Belt is pretty spectacular. Isn't yes, it? definitely. Yeah, Glenelg, Kiyunga. Royal Adelaide, the two courses at the Grange. It's a it's a good little collection of courses, and that that makes it well worth a visit. I'm not surprised to hear you talk about a really good welcome from Royal Adelaide. Uh, I've got a few friends there, and been fortunate enough to visit a few times over the last 10, 12 years. They have a great uh, function on the second Saturday of the month where their members tee off at threes in 10-minute intervals early on a Saturday morning, go and shower and change and get uh, into their jackets and ties and they have a big lunch together and they have a, a set two-course lunch and someone heads up their group, has a look at the menu, does a head count and then sends one of the staff down into the cellar to say, can we have a case of this and a case of that, please? And they usually bring out something old and something good something white and something red and then you might get a cheese board and another red or there'll be some that just sit outside the dining room and look at the 18th green and the first tea area and the third tea area and the occasional train roll by and have a cigar or have a dessert or a coffee or finish off another red and that's I've done that twice and they are some of my favorite memories in golf they're wonderful days great Great membership and great discussion and um, everything you'd want at a Saturday's golf. Yeah, and, and then obviously I just have a vision of retiring to the terrace veranda that overlooks the first tee in the 18th green. And I know there's quite a collection of wine industry individuals there are obviously not being too far away from the Barossa. In fact, Two of my mates are actually involved in in viticulture, um, so no surprise that the cellar is uh, well stocked with both something old, something new, um, but more importantly, something wet. Yeah, the, their cellar is fantastic. It would be the envy of most clubs, not all, most, most, not not quite at Augusta National level, but close. Yeah, for sure. Um, Maybe if we take a look at Tasmania, Matt. Um, obviously, you mentioned uh, that we've mentioned th- thus far. Byron Boogle obviously opening in 04. Lost Farm, 2010. Cape Wickham, you also mentioned Ocean Dunes. But obviously, Clates and Mike DeVries and Matt Goggin are currently working on Seven Mile Beach there, 10 minutes from Hobart Airport. Armand, which is just down the way. I know Greg Ramsey was involved in that. I think OCM are taking that forward. And obviously what Greg's done in Rath- Ratho Farm as well in the middle of the middle of the country is, I believe, I've not been there, but I believe is, is something to be seen. Um, you know, from a low base, or, or a, a, I'm not going to say no base, but from a low base prior to, to Barn Boogle, rearing its head and great kudos to Richard Sattler for for developing that and and, and being inspired by what he uh, what he heard and what he saw throughout Mike Kaiser's um, development in Bandon, Oregon. You know, it's great to see Tasmania really I guess flexing its muscles to a certain degree. I mean 
What can you tell us about the development of, of Tasmanian golf since the early days of, of 2000? As you said, they're, they're really stepping up and they're blessed with a pretty good climate as far as golf's concerned. They're not worried about rainfall. It's never going to get blisteringly hot and so their, their fescue grasses will do really well all year round so they can provide great conditions for golf. There's enough space. It sounds a bit weird and a bit premature to say, well, not one ball's been struck in anger on Seven Mile Beach thus far. But there's within that larger area where the Seven Mile Beach course sits, there's space for a second and third golf course. And I'm not sure what arrangements Matt Goggin would need to look at in order to make that happen. If he's done it already, um, how amenable the state government would be to that sort of thing. I imagine that they're going to be pretty keen to see further development there if my suspicions regarding this, the success of the first course proved correct. And I'm sure it'll be done well in terms of on-site um, development and, and, and sympathy for the, the landscape. So it, it really is starting to become a must-see destination. If you, if you put King Island in with Tasmania, you think, well, I can play five, six, maybe more courses of, of real world-class quality just by visiting King Island and, and Tasmania itself. Farnboogle Dunes is on the, the central north coast of Tasmania and from there down to Hobart is about three and a quarter hours by car. It's, it's quite a scenic drive. It's up and down and you pass Launceston on the way through. Ratho sits right in the middle of Tasmania, so it's about an hour and a quarter, hour and a half north of Hobart Airport. And for your listeners who don't know anything about it, there was a basically a grazing property that's been there for more than 150 years where they had etched out the very basic outlines of, of a golf course a long, long time ago. It was one of the first places where golf was played in Australia, and it's 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 been a golf course paddocks sort of come back as a golf course. I don't think they've had a continuous club linked with the, the course, but it's it's a it's a must see definitely. There's little distilleries up in that neck of the woods and the Clyde River just near Rafa in that in that little town of Bothwell. So that's a, another reason to go and visit that. Yeah, and and I guess finally just on the on the pod questions and more importantly golf in Australia. Having listened to a lot of Clates, he maintains that the best land for golf in Australia is on the west coast in and around Perth and Western Australia. Discuss. He might be right. Um, Mackenzie came here in October 26 and his boat docked at Perth, capital of WA, for about a day, day and a half. He got off and had a little wander around and came and Clates is fond of ruminating on what may have happened should Mackenzie never have got back on that boat. If Royal Perth or Royal Fremantle or someone else grabbed him and said, stick with us and work on this place. If you drive north and south of Perth, south of Fremantle down to where Kennedy Bay and the cut in the little nine hole of Binningyup, where they reside, or if you drive further north up to where Clates has been working at Sun City, and beyond, there's 
seemingly endless stretches of coastal land that's beautifully vegetated and beautifully undulating. Perth sits at the same latitude as Newcastle, so it's a little, it's slightly closer to the equator than Sydney is. It's not, it's not as far south as Melbourne, certainly not as far south as Hobart. So it gets warmer, and that might limit the sort of grasses that you could use on a course in Perth. But any golf aficionado that takes an hour's drive along the coastline north of Perth, they'd, they'd drool sooner or later. They'd be looking around thinking, God, even I could put 18 good holes on this. Why? And obviously, it's not to say they don't they don't have golf over there because, of course, they do. Lake Carnyupt, I believe, is the probably the the highest ranked golf course. But is it purely down to a lack of a lack is the wrong word, but a, a relative lack of population in terms of actually there being a demand for golf? I see there's a lot of building going on at the moment where these sandy sites appear to be being built on for housing which i suppose is is it just a function of demand but you would th- have thought of the land is so good you know the build it and they will come mantra that we've seen over the last 25 30 years from a from a golf destination perspective or a, a new course perspective is it the fact that it's and and i don't mean this to be insulting people from perth but it's as you, as you rightly point out, people don't quite, from outside, the international traveller doesn't perhaps quite realise that Perth is four and a half hours. It's flight away from Sydney and the eastern seaboard. Is it down to geography and a relative numbers game that we don't quite have, but golf that perhaps the land suggests we should have in Perth? I think so. Perth's the most isolated state or provincial capital on the globe. Uh, there's, there's definitely good golf there, as you said, and, and Mount Lawley is a, is a suburban Perth course that's been uh, slowly but surely improving. Royal Fremantle and Royal Perth are, are quite busy courses, um, not great courses of note, but they're busy courses. Robert Trent Jones did uh, Meadow Springs south of Perth. He also did a 27-hole complex jingle up north of Perth. Uh, Lake Harrenup has been renovated uh, back in the day by OCCM, and they did that very well. So people, the broader Perth golfing community has certainly seen what can be done, and any, any Perth-based visitor to Lake Harrenup would certainly get a taste for what was possible in their climate and on their soil. There's plenty of money over there. Uh, so I'm not sure why things aren't at least a little better than they are. I can understand why someone didn't stick to the build it and they will come model a la band and dunes. If we were a country of 300 million, then they could justify it. But at 27 and a half, 28 million, I don't think we have the market to sustain uh, a remote location for golf over over on the western coast of Australia. You know, I'm going to bring the conversation towards, um, I know, an area of interest for you, which is essentially the ongoing distance debate. In relation to this particular topic, um, you first came to my awareness regarding uh, the distance debate through an appearance on the Ross Flanagan My Love of Golf podcast relating to your Rollback Alliance initiative. 
Just before we hear about the Rollback Alliance, I think it might be useful to give listeners an introduction to historical technological developments in golf through the years from the feathery and the long-nosed clubs onwards. As an aside, Garrett Morrison from the Friday did a really great multi-episode docu-pod on the evolution of the golf ball some time ago. It is well worth listening to if people have the time. I'll stick a couple of links in the show notes for that that anybody might be interested I would recommend having a having a listen to that it just gives you an idea of you know there's certain inflection points that have through the years so maybe if we can take a look at the historical development of technology in in, in, the, in the golf market shall we say really probably from the from the feathery onwards um, now don't need to go into too much detail with it but obviously we start off with Alan Robertson and his ilk um, beavering away, fashioning leather-covered golf balls with boiled goose feathers. So over to you from, from, from there on. So we had changes in clubs from that point forth. We had changes in golf balls themselves from gutter percher to more lively golf balls again that Mackenzie wrote about and not necessarily railed against, but certainly wanted some sort of limiting post on how far they could go and how energetic they could be. I think he saw, perhaps more than anyone else, what the potential consequence of, of all of that progression would involve. And from a timing perspective, just Matt, sorry, we're talking about, so the good approach obviously is 1840, 1850 kind of thing, is that right? A uh, little, little later than that. And then, and then around. Okay. Okay. Around the. Can't remember my dates exactly. This will be an impetus for people to go listen to Garrett's podcast with Bob Crosby. Yeah, that the the Haskell I think in the US was the sort of late eighteen nineties, and then introduced into the UK and the rest of the world sort of early days of nineteen oh one, nineteen oh two, because that's when the RNA had their real snafu as to whether they were going to allow it or not and ultimately Lois said no and Cole said yes and uh, we know what happened. As an aside I'm really looking forward to the, the book on low. Um, Bob Crosby's? Yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't read I haven't read a lot on John Lowe but everything I hear about him and what Bob says about him and everything I read of him. And, and when I look at concerning golf, I think, oh, this guy was, was really something and ahead of his time. And I think golf needs someone like him today. No, well, it's, it's amazing. And for those perhaps that, that don't have a rashers, what we're talking about, uh, John Lowe was a contemporary of Harry Colts, uh, uh, wrote a book in 1903 two or 1903 called concerning golf which is essentially where the strategic school of golf course architecture the theory the initial theory behind that basically stems from low um and he was obviously involved with Stuart Patton uh, at Woking on the third or the fourth uh, where they where they put two bunkers uh in a very strategically placed bunkers in a fairway um which obviously led to Amongst other things, uh, Tom Simpson, the designer, giving up his legal career and jumping headlong into golf course architecture. So yeah, low is uh, low is a mover and a shaker. 
that perhaps people don't appreciate as much as they they perhaps should um but certainly probably don't know an awful lot about either yeah and bob's book will definitely address that i'm sure um he was on the rules committee of the rna if i remember correctly as well he was he was he was really something so he as you said he sat on one side of the distance debate and ultimately wasn't successful in getting all of his views across the line uh, as you started out on the initial parts of this topic uh, bald technology has progressed and progressed and progressed from Haskell through various stages to where we find ourselves with really far-flying solid core balls from, let's say, the late 90s to the current day, and they've been refined slowly but surely over the last 20 years. Um, apart from ball technology, club technology is the obvious area as well. You are talking about... Um, Alan Robertson, and that would evoke all sorts of images in the minds of some of your listeners, whether they're transitional spoons or splice neck clubs, hickory shafts, and all sorts of weird and wonderful looking implements. I started playing golf when I was in primary school, which is 1980s. I had a two wood and a four wood and steel shafts and the heads on those little clubs were pretty small. And I don't think anyone would have envisioned a, a 460cc driver with a really hot, forgiving face at that time with super lightweight head and a super lightweight shaft that was 45 and a bit inches long. So the technology certainly advanced at, a, at an enormous rate, uh, even in our lifetimes. And that's that's that, that's that's been good in some ways, but it's 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 come with some clear negatives as well in mind. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, um, there appears to be two sides to this particular. Well, oversimplified, but there seems to be two particular thought processes in relation to this. So, on the one hand, you have concerned individuals like your good self. Um, who perhaps, you know, and I think the context in Australia is quite quite important, actually, because obviously having seen the likes of the first tee at Kingston Heath, where the first tee is essentially in the members' bar, and the golf course has been extended literally right the way out to the fences, and, you know, there's nowhere else to move. Whereas in this, in America... And North America, they, they they tend to, as Clates puts it, don't take my twenty yards and don't take my guns. I know that's a little bit over oversimplified, and it's it. He says that for for comic effect to a certain degree, but just to make his point, why does it matter? I mean, like realistically, and this is probably more from the the American side of the argument. You know, like ultimately, athletes get better. Um, just throw in some trees and narrow the fairways and grow the roof up. Why does what you know? Why are people spitting their dummies out here? Like what you know? At the end of the day, technology improves in an iterative fashion, and we're just seeing an iteration of technology. How long have we got, Shane? <laughs> um, how I could oh, I could go a lot of different ways with this answer. I know you. I know you're baiting me. Um, That's exactly what I'm doing because. Anyway, that, that, that's my job. <laughs> well done. 
Um, <laughs> so let's take your time. I was trying to put in as many incendiary words well. there as I possibly could. Well. Um, rollback Alliance that you alluded to a little earlier, um, someone of like mind, a friend of mine, Will Watt, who was the founder and editor of Caddy Magazine, which was a, a periodical that was produced in Australia for a few years. Um, it's on hiatus at the moment, COVID-induced sort of break. He and I had a coffee years and years ago. Uh, we were talking about our concern for golf. I'd written a piece for Caddy based on technology and um, the need for a, a rollback. And that really resonated with Will. And we decided to do something a little more than just publish the essay in his magazine. And we've done all sorts of different things over the last four years, I think it is now, five years. One of which was start a website that uh, is, is a, a little repository of a few resources, some essays. There's an essay in there that is a great, I think it's great. Of course, I think it's great. I wrote it. Um, <laughs> it's a great explanation of how narrowing the fairways and growing the rough does the exact opposite. Not the answer for, for those who think that the ball goes too far uh, and neither is planting trees, merely rewards an errant player who can really generate great swing speed and huge carry distance. Disproportionately penalises the short hitter who can't hack their way out of long rough when they miss a narrow fairway when they have five iron in hand, whereas that bomber who is within wedge range of the green doesn't really pay that much of a price in essence. So those sorts of cosmetic changes don't really achieve the effects that people hope or consider that they might. Narrowing courses and growing rough and planting trees left and right in fairways isn't golf either. Um, so you're saying Webb Simpson's wrong? Yeah, Webb, Webb I, I don't think I don't think Webb got much right in that press conference a few years ago. Um, why, why do you think that is? I mean, it's not as if he has any vested interest or anything like that. I mean, it doesn't get paid by manufacturers, and you know, is he is he just speaking the script, or is, is he, sure he just wind him up and sure he's speaking like to man? the same script that Justin <laughs> Thomas got and that Peter Costas got and uh, and various others? Um, the distance issue was really really important in golf globally. It manifests itself in different ways in different corners of the world. There are some courses in the US where boundary fence is not an issue, but there's a lot of courses where it is an issue. You alluded to Kingston Heath being stretched, and it's been stretched further since you visited. And I'm not sure if you played from the normal members tee or if you saw the tee that they use for that opening hole when they play tournaments at Kingston Heath. It, that tournament tee, it really, really is under the awnings of the of the veranda of, of the clubhouse. You two steps back and you are in the bar. And, and I know people talk about that sensation and that atmosphere fondly at Merriam, but um, it's reached its limits at Kingston Heath. And it doesn't take an Einstein to walk around the sandbelt and think that that same critical situation doesn't exist at a variety of other courses, whether it's Victoria Golf Club, whether it's Woodlands, it's, it's getting closer at Royal Melbourne. Royal Melbourne's 18th East Tee has been stretched back to the very corner of, its, of, of, of the club's property. It's 
right in the corner of Cheltenham Road and Reserve Road. People slice their tee shots off the second tee at Woodlands onto White Street, which is a very busy suburban road all the time. Those clubs face mounting insurance fees, potentially escalating legal costs, various costs in fortifying their boundaries, all because the ball goes further and off-centre hits can still travel a long way with contemporary equipment. And it's not for everyone. It's not, it's not going to be for a 38 marker in a midweek women's competition. But there will be a significant percentage of members at each club, visitors at each course, who are capable of really sending a ball into orbit, into neighbouring houses, onto roads, onto footpaths. And the game is poorer for that. And the, the game will find itself in danger as a consequence of that. And it, it saddens me and, and angers me a little, if I'm truthful, but more people don't realise that. But, I mean, you know, the, the commentators will suggest that really the issue only pertains to, you know, less than 1% of golfers out there. I mean, we're talking about class one plus golfers. We're talking about the pro level. And, you know, surely to God we can just build 20 golf courses or 30 golf courses or whatever it is over in the States to, to manage that. I would disagree with that suggestion in part because there are lots of members and regular weekend golfers who can hit the ball into dangerous places and hit the ball out of sight and hit the ball off property. Uh, I'll, I'll differ with many people on this topic uh, in that some see bifurcation as the way forward, and, and bifurcation certainly addresses the distance issue at the professional level, the elite level of the game. I think it's a, I think it's a bigger problem than that. I think that safety issues impact the way that courses are designed, the way that they're fenced, the way that they're managed. And you and I teeing it up on a Saturday or a Sunday, bifurcation doesn't solve that problem. We need to be smart as a game and our, our legislators and our governors need to be very smart in terms of managing this in the next few years, next decade, however long they're going to take, because there are some people who can't hit it over a jam tin and some people have really enjoyed their time in golf as a consequence of more forgiving clubs and further flying balls. But the positives that those golfers have enjoyed, unfortunately, have caught a raft of negatives for, for others who share those same fairway. In terms of, I guess, maybe looking at the game now at the professional elite level, versus how it was, let's say, 25 years ago. Do you feel the balance between equipment and the golfer and the test of golf was in a better balance 25 years ago, in a better balance now? Was the game more interesting to watch 25 years ago versus today? And where does guess the original designer's intent in terms of the strategy to play the golf course percolate through those two positions and how has that changed? Okay. I think I remember all those questions. <laughs> the, the balance between equipment and course was definitely better years ago. 
I keep coming back to this notion that the driver should never have got bigger than the 975D, which is a sub-300cc driver. If you put a good swing on a tee shot with that club, you found the centre of the club face. You, you got the ball out there. But if you didn't put a good pass on it, didn't find the right part of the club face, didn't go so well. So better golfers could differentiate themselves from less skilled golfers, less consistent golfers. Um, I fear that the pendulum has swung a little too far in favour of too much forgiveness from equipment this day and age. And, and to the point that you see that in, in recreational golfers and you definitely see it at a professional level where swings have changed to the point where there's just more and more guys swinging as hard as they possibly can, swinging out of their shoes. There have always been pro golfers who've swung hard and hit it with seemingly almost violent actions. But I think there's a... There's Athletes, yeah? Well, yeah, yeah. Weisskopf was an athlete. Seve was an athlete. Frank Stranahan was an athlete. But there's always been athletes. Jay Monaghan will have you believe differently. Brandall will have you believe differently. But there's always been athletes. And, and those guys, Norman. Norman was, we'll probably talk about him before we finish our episode tonight, but Norman was, was phenomenal. And he could swing hard and find the centre of the club face and he did it without fear. And he had equipment that allowed him to demonstrate that skill and enjoy an advantage over his competitors who didn't possess that skill. And now we've heard people like Rory, we've heard people like Adam Scott talk about others who hit a tee shot and then walk down the fairway to the same spot or, heaven forbid, beyond them. And Rory and Adam must look around and think, you have no right being here. You're, you're not as good as me. And you're doing this by virtue of the forgiveness of the equipment in your hands. So I, I don't think that the balance between equipment and course is that great today. I think it was much better at least 20 years ago. Adrian Logue, one of your previous guests, is, is, is fond of trying to identify a, a zenith for that particular question and I think he I think he gravitates to an open somewhere in the 80s and I'm, I might not take it back quite so far but I'm, I'm headed in Adrian's direction you know something that you often hear uh, Rod Murray speak about is you know the 360 yard drive versus the 310 yard drive visually when you see it is it's pretty it looks exactly the same. You can't distinguish between one and the other. I mean, the it, it's no less spectacular. The three sixty no, definitely three ten, um, and distance, as as Doctor Mack points out, or any any reduction in distance is relative. So, like, yeah, and I think we forget certainly from a conspicuous consumption perspective. Just going back to that point that I made earlier, that surely you can just have twenty or thirty pro golf courses and, and leave it at that I think they're just the way that people think they always like to have you know the chance of having a tournament on their golf course whether or not it's a tournament golf course or not they like to have the length so ultimately if you have to keep increasing the distances of golf courses you know you're limited to the footprint that you have or you're limited to being Augusta National and buying part of Augusta Country Club and repositioning the 13th theatre i mean that can't go on forever and yeah and, not, and we haven't even mentioned 
how it's not a great look from an environmental and sustainability perspective. No, that's that was part of the reason why I asked how long we had because I was thinking of the the sheer time it takes to walk a course that is that long, the land it occupies, chemicals it requires, cost of mowing and maintaining, the water it uses. It's it's endless. It's endless. And and some people of a contrary view will say don't lengthen them. And then you find yourself going back to that issue of architectural intent that you intimated a little earlier, Shane, which is, which is really important. It always strikes me as odd that more people don't recognise it as being so important because the week after the Masters, social media is awash with people talking about how good the tournament was. And that, in large part, is due to the arena on which it was played not necessarily the quality of the surfaces or the quality of the players, but the course over which the tournament was conducted. And that's that's architectural intent. That's why people rave about President's Cup at Royal Melbourne and talk about it so fondly. That's when golf goes to those great venues, the game is elevated. And when equipment and that venue are no longer in sync, are no longer in appropriate scale, we lose something. We lose something significant. And um, architectural intent is, is, is definitely lost at a great number of courses around the world in this day and age when professionals visit, even, even far-hitting amateurs visit. I was trying to think of an analogy for this a while ago. I have a friend who's a keen golfer and a keen Formula One follower. And we we're talking about Suzuka and we we're talking about the course at Albert Park and Monaco. And I thought I'd be a bit cheeky. And I started talking to him about the possibility of Formula One cars having better suspension and being able to ride over chicanes and corners and ripple strips a little bit better. And maybe they could just sort of carry more speed through corners and not worry so much about trying to find an apex. Just almost go straight over them. And he was aghast at the thought of that. And I asked why, and he said, well, then it's sort of, it's no longer Formula One. It's sort of more like monster truck drag racing. You just have this big brute of a vehicle just going in a straight line without any nuance or any care for the course is laid out in front of them. And literally as he finished his answer, I could see the little light bulb go off where he realised, hang on. That's entrapment. That's, that's <laughs> what's happening to golf today. Well, it's, it's, some would say entrapment. Some would say just, just allowing someone to flesh out their own thoughts and uh, come to a conclusion of their own volition. Yeah. If we look at, and sorry for cutting across you there, if we look at a lot of this lengthening, et cetera, is... Probably is a direct result of of Tiger proofing and what went on at, at Augusta. Yeah, that's one of the the starting points. And obviously, Augusta decided they needed more length and more trees. And obviously, they don't have the they have more of a rough issue in inverted commas now than they perhaps did back then. In fact, back then they probably had no rough. But what influence do you think those sort of lengthening? And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to a certain degree that the, 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 the ball manufacturer feels they have to push it further and push it further and push it further so the courses have to get 
longer and longer and longer. What could have we collectively, or what could have golf done, rather than add additional length? Back when they start, when we started to add additional length, um, you know, we've sort of figured that it, the balance is, is is okay. Sort of twenty five years ago versus the questions that the the, the course is asking versus the questions that the technology is allowing the golfer or golfers to to develop and and select what could we have done differently well, earl woods famously scoffed at this habit of tiger proofing and he thought it was heading in absolutely the wrong way he, he made a famous quote about the benefits of doing the opposite if you wanted to make more people in a tournament field competitive, then you could widen it and shorten it, and then more people would be able to compete. The longer you make the course, the more you're playing into Tiger's hands. And I think that history has demonstrated that to be true. Um, I've always liked the Royal Troon Golf Club's motto, as much by skill as by strength. And we can all think of little par three holes where precision is prized. And they're short holes. They're reachable for almost any grade of golfer. But to play it well, you've got to be accurate. And I think course design that embraced length over a need for accuracy has been one of the disappointing elements of a number of golf course developments over the past 20 years. As you said, it's sort of going hand in glove with this procession of ball technology advancing a thirst for greater distance. And so driver technology advances and golf courses get longer and we just end up in this terrible merry-go-round. I think having the fortitude to either leave them alone, building courses that prized accuracy more than length, and, and the obvious, the obvious one from the outset of, of, of greater regulatory strength from the very outset. Um, you Commonwealth listeners will understand and remember a time when Dennis Lilly, a great Australian cricketer, a bowler, sidled out to the middle of a test cricket ground one day with an aluminium bat. And he got told pretty quickly to ask for a replacement send that one back to the dressing rooms and get a proper bat in your hands. And I can't help but think what would have happened if golf's governing bodies acted with the same strength and the same speed confront when confronted either with a broomstick putter or an oversized metal driver way back when. We wouldn't be in the position we're in today. It's interesting. I mean, you look at sports like baseball, tennis, uh, and they're the two that immediately jump to mind. That rather than fix their stadia, um, and the MLB just uh, said you can't choose an aluminium bat in the major leagues, and the tennis federations basically made heavier balls and different rackets so the game is modulated for the the viewer and the fan i suppose i mean ultimately i i often think you know when they show the highlights of the highlights reel of being a major or you know 
any PGA or European DP World Tour event. They're showing you the up and downs. They're not showing you the 360-yard drives. You know, spectacular and all as they are, and you know, seeing Rory do what he did last week, nearly driving 400-yard grains at St Andrews, fantastic. But it's actually, can you get up and down from there? Is actually the more important question, but actually, oftentimes the more spectacular shot. Definitely, you're seeing one 350 yard drive. There's another one. It's not so what, but let's see what he does next. It's that Seve moment at the 18 at Crans Montana, where Billy's trying to get him to hack out sideways, and he goes up over the the wall through the dinner plate sized hole in the trees and chips in for birdie. They're the shots that you remember. It's not the not the 350 yard drive for me anyway i think for most of us when we when we really drill down into it and consider it properly um scratch golf has had two clips that they featured on their social channels in the last couple of weeks and they've both been huge tiger woods drives from the early years of his career and he has put enormously fast swings on them and people marvel at the fact that the balls ended up going 320 yards and there's, there's a plethora of people that can carry it 320 these days and golf's probably poorer for that as you said as you said not too long ago distance is all relative and if tiger was hitting at 320 and then suddenly john Rahm got a hold of one and hit at 325 people would be ooing and ahhing and they'd be marveling at how good a shot it was these days particularly in the early part of the calendar year when the US Tour visitors visits Phoenix and I think they do it at Torrey as well. The broadcasters basically mark out the fairways on the broadcast, not with paint on the grass, but certainly on the broadcast, like they would mark out an American football field with yardage increments and we end up celebrating which drives get to 350 or Tony Finau at 355. And I, it escapes me why there's this, this fixation on distance when those short shots are so much more exciting and relatable and more popular as well. Seve's little chip between the bunkers in the early years of him playing the Open, Tiger Woods chip from the back of 16 to win the, the Masters all those years ago. Um, far more impressive and far more memorable shots and discernible as well rather than just a lash from the tee. It's interesting that you mention the narrative that essentially happens through our tv sets and also i think maybe i guess there's this feeling that i certainly have that our north american friends are trying to you know attract new golfers and golf is a strange sport and of course we want new golfers of course we do but Ultimately, the vast majority of people watching golf, I think, are existing golfers. Realistically, it only really gets exciting sort of the back nine on the Sunday, to be honest. But in saying that, you know, there appears to be, I guess, the broadcast narrative in relation to the, the distance off the tee doesn't exactly help. But I think we're trying to attract and, and pulling a lever such as distance which actually maybe doesn't quite impress the golfers watching. Maybe it's trying to, to, to just expand that 
that interest level pulling pulling a lever that doesn't essentially really appeal to people is that right is that, am i am i am i making sense there yeah i think so there's obviously a huge push to try and attract more people to the game and promote greater interest in professional game in, in North America. A lot of effort on social media, a lot of effort from uh, broadcasting partners to try and entice a, a different demographic, probably to the detriment of their product, truth be told. Mm. Um, and if I'm not careful, that could very quickly turn into a question about Liv, but we'll get to that in a little while. I've tried to stay away from Liv on, on this particular podcast because I'm still not still not really sure where i where i stand in it i mean uh pga tour is definitely ripe for some some change you would think and they kind of left themselves open to blindsiding which essentially is what happened and i would have liked to have seen the um the pgl conversation take a bit more uh, of a center stage but it doesn't seem to have happened and i don't think at this stage it probably possibly will but i guess just in terms of you know, going back to what has happened historically. I mean, we last heard from the RNA and USGA, and I kind of got the feeling that you might agree with the fact that, you know, if anything, the golf equipment space has been very light touch from a, a regulatory perspective. We last heard from the RNA and the USGA USGA back in March 2022 obviously they've been looking at the distance topic for some time both historically over the last number of years and what the footprint of golf facilities you know, was and has become I know they've that predominantly focused on USA and I know George George Waters was involved in that and I know they have used some information from both the UK and Europe and indeed Australia. What did they say back then in terms of what they're you know what, what they're currently doing? And I know COVID kind of got in the way of this, so we're a little bit behind where we should be. You know, what do you think their next steps are and what do you think is there is it silly being optimistic I'm sorry, certainly having an optimistic outlook as to where they're heading or not as the case may be there's definitely cause to be optimistic i think that's been tested at times people would rightly have wondered why things have taken so long we it's so far beyond pretty clear and concise statement within that 2003 joint statement of principles that mentions a line in the sand in terms of distance advancements and, and, and yet we're here almost 20 years later with no material change to equipment. I think the most likely thing that we will see as a consequence of that Distance Insights report communication earlier this year is the adoption of, of what they refer to as those modified local rules that would be a pathway to bifurcation and a, and a pro ball within certainly PGA Tour Golf, DP World Tour Golf, and, and various other tournaments at that level. Uh, if I was the czar of golf, I think things would be very different. I'd, I'd, have a, I'd have a hit list in terms of the, 
the maximum COR of a driver. I would change the overall distance standard a little more forcefully than what that distance insights report has hinted at thus far. I think that the, the likelihood of bifurcation at the elite level of the game is probably the strongest that it's been since, since they first started talking about the, the distance issue. And um, it would appear, certainly from my reading of the situation, that the elephant in the room in relation to this or appears to be Akushnet, the Akushnet, uh, should I say, uh, the owner of Titleist. They appear to have the, I guess they sell on where the longest ball, where the most used ball of the majors. Do you think that, I don't know if Wally Uline is still the CEO, if you aren't Wally, please accept my apologies, I don't pay that much attention to corporate governance in, uh, for Akushnet. But, um, you know, do these, <laughs> I mean, like I appreciate their, their businesses and commercial operations, but they don't seem to care a jot for golf, really. They just care about growing the game, which obviously equals lining my own bloody pockets. They'll tell, they'll tell you they care about golf. They foster the pro game and give away money to various charitable elements within the broader game of golf. Um, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure various brands do that more than we realise. I don't expect them to be custodians of the game to the detriment of their bottom line, but I think that they could have done a much better job of serving two masters. I think that those, the equipment company is certainly the major stumbling block with any sort of regulatory reform within golf, and, and they, they see endangerment of billions of dollars, so I can understand why they do. Golf's governing bodies are obviously aware of the legal implications and I assume they're very aware of the potential ways in which they can soften that blow for manufacturers. Really long sunset clauses, uh, staged reductions in terms of drivers, specs, ball specs, uh, things that could soften the potential economic impact to ball makers and club makers alike. I'm surprised that that hasn't happened to this point. I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other golfers out there that would be thinking, come on, you can do this. Let's just take some baby steps, but at least take some steps. And it's it's funny, looking at the inflection points through the years, there have been so many, I guess, opportunities that have been have not been taken, really. You know, you can read some of the commentary in relation to this, the distance the ball goes back in the early 1910s and 1900s, if you like. And actually, the arguments that have been, you know, that have been, been, been laid out, you know, all you got to do is change the date. And, and the arguments that were been had back in the, by John Lowe in the 1900s and by Mackenzie and, you know, Spirit of St. Andrews, it's all there. And like, I do appreciate that things change and improvements are made, but it can't be unshackled, shall we say, improvements. And certainly there was a number of opportunities, undoubtedly over the last hundred years or so, to, to a certain degree try and put the 
breaks on development. And I think perhaps we would be in a better position if that had occurred. But it's, you know, it, it's comforting to understand that there is a process on, under consideration and under discussion. But you just wonder, get your finger out, boys. It's time to bite the bullet. Yeah, and there's, there's precedent there in other sports as well. You were talking about tennis and bifurcation in terms of bats within baseball and, and the MLB in the US. My, my favourite example in that space is the, the swimming suits, the buoyant uh, speed suits. Yeah, of course. Uh, there's an essay on the Rollback Alliance that, that makes particular mention of those in terms of putting the genie back in the bottle or putting the toothpaste back in the tube. There we, we see athletes who are training harder, getting better stroke technique, getting stronger, swimming faster, their nutrition's better, their recovery's better. There's, there's athletic pursuit and athletic achievement there, but it's not being camouflaged by technical advancement in equipment. And I think we're seeing that in golf at the moment. Um, so, the, yeah, the precedent for a rollback is certainly before our eyes. And, and FINA would have come under some pressure from the manufacturers of those swimsuits, Speedo, Arena, CYR, they're various competitors in the marketplace, by no means as big a market as golf balls and golf clubs. But there's, there's, there's precedent there for the, for the, the minds of the USGA and the RNA to follow. We can but hope, Matt, that those that actually get paid to oversee and be custodians of the game finally get on script with this stuff because uh, it's about time. Listen, just wanted to touch on a couple of topics in the golfing landscape in Australia. I know that RM have actually taken over managing Sandy Links, which is there beside you down in Black Rock in Melbourne. And recently enough, or certainly within the last two or three years, I believe Golf Australia and the PGA of, PGA of Australia have merged and have moved into the new National Performance Centre at Sandy Links. You know, it's as a complete aside, I just contrast the Golfing Union of Ireland are now what's known as Golf Ireland and their move out of their headquarters building in the middle of Dublin maybe 20 years ago, or 50, yeah, 20 years ago probably, to the uber-exclusive confines of a 36-hole private facility at Carton House with a national performance centre within the confines of a walled estate versus the uh, Sandy Links move to a municipal facility. And uh, one to me brings all the right particular plaudits and bells and one is maybe not quite as um, meritorious, shall we say. Uh, I'll let you decide which one is which. I guess re really my question is: Since OCM redeveloped Sandy Links, have you had an opportunity to uh, play much there? Yes, I have a couple of games there since all of that work was completed. Royal Melbourne's had a management role at, at Sandringham Public Golf Course, or Sandy Links, as it's now known, for many years. Uh, that's deepened as time has gone on to the point where the turf is managed at Sandy by one of the ground staff at Royal Melbourne, the young woman who's moved across to manage her own crew, Sandringham. Geraldine, um, what's she's Geraldine been, I can't remember her second name. She's been on two podcasts that I've listened to in the last 12 months. 
and she does a good job at Sandy as well because it gets mm-hmm. it gets a lot of traffic and it hasn't been over endowed with the budget that some other private clubs enjoy in the immediate vicinity. She does a very good job. Sandy Links is grass the same way as, as Royal Melbourne, so they have um, rescue collars around their greens as, as Royal Melbourne does and, uh, and Sutton's Mixed Greens. My apologies, Geraldine O'Callaghan is the lady's name. She does a great job. Um, course is reminiscent in some ways of Royal Melbourne. It's a, a, like a cousin, I suppose, sits across the road on a smaller plot, slightly less diverse vegetation, uh, smaller holes, but similar sort of um, ethos behind their green construction has a placement and character of hazards as well. It's more manageable. It's not, not as demanding in parts, given the, the, the broad clientele that play across the, the week at the public course. They have a huge driving range there. And as you said, the, the Games Administration is housed there in a new building. There's a huge, um, huge Himalayas putting green that greets you as soon as you drive in the front gate as well. It's a really, really neat feature and when Royal Melbourne hosts big events like the 2019 President's Cup, um, the overflow car parking and corporate village and and whatnot extends onto Sandringham and not just Royal Melbourne. It's been a a good thing for both parties. It's definitely a uh, facility I'd like to take a look at when I'm next in Melbourne, whenever that may be. Hopefully 2024. I'd like to bring you on to the Sandbelt Invitational. Obviously a Jeff Ogilvie and uh, Mike Clayton brainchild, which obviously got up off the ground this last year. We're just about to, uh, or nearly about to uh, usher in the second staging of that. Those that don't know, it's a, am I right, three course uh, consecutive days. Uh, last year was Kingston Heath, Royal Melbourne, four actually, isn't it? Yarra Yarra and PK North. I believe that the event started up out of Jeff's weekly or fortnightly get togethers on the Melbourne Sandbelt to to guide and to influence perhaps new and up-and-coming golfers, elite golfers, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that was the genesis of it. Bates has spoken about this fraternal environment in generations past where touring professionals would guide and advise those setting out on a career and... I think he bemoans the absence of that in this day and age. Uh, Programs and um, high-performance facilities or various uh, golfers travelling across to US colleges to to play in their their early uh, early 20s, late teens. I'd, I'd suspect that something is lost, something's gained, but something's also lost by following that path. Jeff really walks the walk in terms of growing the game. It's a horrible phrase, I hate using it, but he gives a lot back. And 
He comes back to Melbourne regularly and plays in the Victorian Open. That fortnightly event that he coordinates, as you as you mentioned a second ago, Shane, called the game. He might have anywhere between six and seventeen uh, young amateurs, budding professionals, guys who will soon turn pro, just band together and play eighteen holes amongst themselves somewhere on the sand belt on a Monday, and they've done it here, there, and everywhere. And I'm sure that they're going great experience and forge great friendships and learn lots by, by sharing those times with one another. And the Sandbelt Invitational, for all intents and purposes, seems to be an extension of that with a slightly greater field, a broader field. Peter Fowler played in it last year. Uh, Lucas Herbert played in it last year. Uh, there's men, women, young, old, professional, amateur, small field, as you said, four good courses over four days. Can't recall the composition of courses that they're going to play it over this year. I, part of me wants to say it's the same, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think I think I'd heard something similar. It is mooted to be the same anyway. That's a a really neat thing that Jeff does, and I'm sure that there's young golfers who will gain invaluable experience from their participation in that event. And it's a great thing for the more established professionals to come back and participate in that, pass on some of their skills and experiences. I think I heard that Mark Leishman is a possibility to play in it this year as well. Uh, well, he, he has a bit more time on his hands these days, uh, you know, spending time with his family and whatnot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> couldn't resist that you know that actually gives me a nice little sachet into the next question which i'm gonna bring up from the bells here needless to say uh cameron smith mark leishman matt jones jeb morgan have all signed up to the live tour which is great um i guess pertinently in terms of victorian open and the queensland open i did hear something a few weeks back where both cam smith and mark leishman have essentially agreed well, cam definitely has agreed to underwrite the prize money of the queensland open prize pool during the summer of golf in australia to the tune of perhaps a million dollars a year for the next 10 years now that's that's phenomenal first of all irrespective of what you think about live and whatever else um i see also that Royal Adelaide and the Grange are perhaps fighting it out to host a live event. Wade Ormsby is obviously a member of Royal Adelaide and it appears South Australian Premier Peter, I'm going to butcher this, but let's give it a go. Malinowskis seems particularly keen on welcoming the live bandwagon to South Australia. Contrasted and counterpointed actually by the Victoria Premier Dan Andrews' assertion that live is not particularly welcoming Vic. Not too unexpected, I suppose, as Melbourne will see the President's Cup return in 2028 and 2040. I guess given the fact that the PGA Tour hasn't exactly done the local Australian Tour, or indeed the DP World Tour, historically, many favours over the years, since the wraparound season became a thing in the States, I'm interested to understand what the feeling is generally amongst golfers in Australia with regard to Sharky's latest attempts to take over the world of golf. Yeah. Continues to be a lot of Greg Norman fans across Australia. I think it would be fair to say that that number is diminishing, but there are still a lot of them. 
who very fondly remember his exploits from his playing days, and that shapes people's opinions to a degree. There is a definite and strong and sizable sentiment amongst Australian golfers that they're embracing live and they bemoan essentially the demise of the Australian tour as the US PGA tour has grown. And I think that those who would welcome a live event to our shores are very, very happy for the US PGA tour to get a taste of their own medicine. I have essentially a very different opinion. <laughs> From the word go, there has been a dishonesty and an element of deceitfulness to live that I find impossible to ignore. And that comes from Greg Norman promising that he wants to get along with the PGA Tour. Comes from Greg Norman promising those who sign that they'll be able to get world ranking points. It comes from the Saudis stealing PGL slash Rain Group slash Andy Gardner's ideas from years earlier. Comes from players saying that they won't go and then they do. Players who want to go because they want to grow the game. They really want to grow their bank balance. Players who want a lighter professional schedule and they want to spend more time with their families and then they flit around the world and play seven events in eight weeks. I just can't come at it. And I think everyone would be in agreement that the professional golfing landscape needed major reform and that the US PGA Tour wasn't doing the vast majority of the golfing world any great favours. But this is not the way to deliver that change. Do not need Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia essentially owning and running golf. Don't need the rest of the golf world following Greg Norman's tune. He was an amazing golfer, probably the biggest narcissist this country's ever produced. With an ice cream cone, he would have licked himself to death 40 years ago. Um, I think the only way forward is for both he and Jay Monaghan to go, some sort of compromise to be reached. I definitely don't bemoan guys like Cam Smith and various others at the back end of their professional career cashing in now that they've got the opportunity. Despite where the money comes from, I think it would be very hard for people to say no to a cheque that was so sizable came along for doing so seemingly little, particularly when the crimes of the Saudi regime are largely invisible to the vast majority of the Western world. But I definitely do not share the enthusiasm for Live that much of my golfing friends display for it. Um. And we'll just leave that there. <laughs> thank, you. thank you for your assessment. <laughs> because it's a it's a big hole you could jump into. Oh, we could we could talk for another two hours about. Oh, we could, we could. And I, look, as I said, I'm kind of on the, on the fence, and I, I agree with everything you said there. Um, but the, I mean, the PGA Tour left themselves 
open to an assault of this nature. And the wonder is it took, well, it took Sharky two bites to the, two bites to the cherry <laughs> to actually, uh, to, uh, yeah, and, and to finally find somebody with deep enough pockets. But look, I mean, there's that whole, Monaghan's narrative about it's, it, you know, the, the business bottle doesn't make any sense. Well, it does if you look at their 2030 uh, aspirations as a country. And um, like it's undoubtedly part of a bigger post or peak oil strategy, um, which they've looked out and about in the Middle East and they've seen what's happened in Dubai and they've seen what's happened to a degree in the UAE. And you know, those places have turned into golfing destinations and golfing meccas, if you like, for the for the, the European winter and, and farther afield, if you like. It would appear that they want to get a bite of that particular cherry. But as I said, look, we're not going to solve liver, the uh, machinations of the, the wider golf sphere today. So, you know, we're going to jump in get in the last couple of questions and get you out of here. You've been very good to give me some time of a Sunday evening in Melbourne. As returning listeners will know, our second last question relates to our guests' bucket list courses or destinations. You can reference five or more or less and interpret any constraints if you see fit what courses are on your bucket list and why have you selected them i've not been to pine valley that's definitely on there everyone who's been there says it's the best course in the world still a fraction of a percent of me that finds that difficult to believe so i'd like to go and satisfy that for myself i haven't been to north berwick and i haven't been to royal dornick and i think i've got to go there I went to St Andrews 20 years ago and I had a handicap, double digit handicap back then. I would actually like to go around St Andrews in two ways. The first is with my hickory clubs and the second, which I think would be highly unlikely but would be a joy if I could actually play the course in reverse. Don't know how I'm going to make that happen. <laughs> I do have a Sunday stick, so I could. It could take me seven hours on a Sunday playing a very a very ground based game, but I could theoretically do it. Um, that that would be that would be a, a uh, an, an incredible memory. Either either of those hickories or or in reverse. Hickories are more likely though. Been playing hickory golf for about eight years, and doing it at a, at a place like the old course would just be insanely fun. I imagine. Where are we? That's for Pine Valley. So, can I just ask you a question about the hickory golf there for a second? Oh yeah. How did you get into that? Is that was that a, as a reaction to what was happening with the golf ball, or was it just a moment of madness? Was it a drunken bet, or how did it uh, how did it materialize? Curiosity and and the the hickories probably fueled the rollback initiative, not the other way around. Because mm-hmm. I'd I'd go I'd go to Kingston Heath, or I'd go to Royal Melbourne, and play with clubs that were of the time when the course was constructed, and. It's it just fit, and you you really have to do your best to carry a hazard. You were skirting hazards. You needed to think about topography so much more. I think I got interested in hickories 
more out of curiosity. I was always fascinated in you know, the difference between a mashi or clique or a jigger or a brassy. I'd always been a little interested in history in various forms, I suppose. As I'd read more in golf, I'd read a little bit about Bobby Jones. I'd, I'd read about Alistair McKenzie. Um, and I, I think gravitating towards those clubs um, was one of the best things I've done in golf. I wish I wish more people experienced the joy that those clubs have given me. Sorry, I sorry, I took you off on a tangent there. So you've no, 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 not at all, not at all. Yeah, so so Pine Valley and St Andrews. Pine Valley, uh, St Andrews. So you've, you're two into your list. Uh, North Berwick is on there. I've not been Royal Dornick. I've not been, and you said I can go more than five. <laughs> you, can, you can choose as many as you want. Can I? I've, I've not been to Muirfield, and I've not been to National Golf in South America. There's six. There's a half dozen. Okay, and you didn't even pick an Irish course to sort of half curry favour with me. I remember I was travelling around Los Angeles and California in 2012 and I had a friend who was travelling around Ireland at the same time and I was taking photos and emailing people and Riviera one day, LACC the next, Valley Club the next visited Cyprus on that trip and my friend Mark, who had been travelling around Ireland, sent me some photos and emailed me very briefly during his trip. And he said that these places are far better than all of the goat tracks that you're visiting over there in the US. <laughs> so maybe maybe I should have mentioned my list a little, Shane. Well, yeah, Matt, as and when, whenever you get over here, be delighted to uh, point in the right direction and maybe host at a few locations as well. So don't be a stranger in relation to that. You obviously have seen quite a lot, but there's still quite a bit for you to see too. So, um, In terms of our final question, which relates to reading recommendations, I always ask our guest to recommend two golf books to augment anybody's golf library. What are those two golf books that you would suggest. The Spirit of St. Andrews by Alistair McKenzie, mm -hmm. which is self-explanatory. Oh, Anatomy of a Golf Course by Tom Doak. I oscillated on the second one. I had a short list of about five. Could, okay. could list any of any of Jeff Shackelford's books, could put the links by Robert Hunter in there. Weather and Simpson is awesome. Jeff's actually doing a new book, which I cannot wait to get my hands on. Yeah, uh, golf architecture for normal people. Which I just, I just love that title. I love that title. Um, a year or two back, Royal Melbourne lost a life member, Dr. John Green, who's a past club champion, uh, past historian, club. He lived for the longest time in a nice house up near Green on the second hole of the East Course. And John Green authored a book in his last few years that was it's titled The Courses of the Royal Melbourne Golf Club. And it's historic, it's an historical look back. Similar to that book that you've got. So the courses of the Royal Melbourne Golf Club by Mike Clayton, uh, with some beautiful pictures in there. 
a couple of different contributors from memory. I don't think it's just Gary Lisbon or David Scaletti. I think there's a few in there. John's book is smaller size, smaller dimensions, more pages, and, and it's a more in-depth analysis of the architecture and the evolution of both the East and West course. And that's, I think there's only 500 copies of it, but that is a brilliant book. And, and if you're particularly interested in architecture and if you're an Australian listening to this and you, and you have a, a reverence for Royal Melbourne, cannot recommend that book strongly enough. So I've cheated. There's a few in there. Sorry. That's fine. No, no that's cool. That, look, the whole idea about that question is that people, if they're so inclined, and rest assured, you're not the first person to, to recommend uh, either Anatomy of Golf Course or the spirit of St. Andrews. But I just think as, uh, the more people hear the recommendation that they haven't got the book already, they just almost go and get that. Because actually, look, you don't need to have a, a multi-volume library, but it's kind of, it, it is actually instructive to read some of this stuff and you might actually see golf slightly differently having read something that Jeff wrote or something that Alistair McKenzie wrote, or maybe not, but you know, as Mackenzie said himself, any conversation about golf furthers golf, ultimately. Whether you agree with the person with what they're saying or you don't, at least if they can, if, if they put a little earwig in your ear or a thought in your head that you haven't thought about previously, then happy days. Listen, Matt, before we let you go, you might just tell listeners how they can keep up to date with the Australian Golf Passport podcast, the Rollback Alliance and indeed keep tabs on Matthew Mollick at Golf Tragic. Uh, the Australian Golf Passport podcast has its own Instagram account and uh, Twitter handle, which I think is at OzGolfPassport. The Instagram account we actually use a fair bit, and if we speak about a particular hole or a particular green or an element of course that is the focus of an episode we really try to load up with a lot of pictures to bring it to life that people can look at while they're listening to the podcast and don't just listen to me and scott rabbit on uh rollback alliance similarly uh there is a website for the rollback alliance with a few essays one or two little resources on there uh has its own twitter handle we've really a few hundred times over the last few years to try and bring all of those voices from the last 120 years that have been of similar mind all in the one place at one time. So whether it's Lynn or Frank Novolo or Alistair McKenzie or Mike Clayton, anyone in between, all of their all of their voices or all of their quotes are there in the one account. And just Matt Mollica for me personally. Most of my most of my stuff's golf. I'm sure that my podiatry colleagues who follow me on Twitter scratch their heads on occasion and think, "What on earth is this guy talking about? Why am I still following him?" <laughs> that's yeah, that's the best way to um, listen to what I prattle on about. Uh, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Many thanks for your time. Continued success for yourself and Scotty with the Australian Golf Passport Podcast. 
be sure to enjoy your imminent summer of golf. It's getting darker and colder here, so summer must be coming to the sandbot. Um, go easy. Thanks, Shane. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me. You're more than welcome, mate. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.